Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. would be turning your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13. And as I've mentioned the past few weeks, we're going to be taking a break from 1 Samuel. As you know, we've been working through the book of 1 Samuel, just finished up chapter 8 last week. But uh, beginning today, we're going to take a break through Christmas and into the new year to look at Advent, the, the reality of the Incarnation as we come to Christmas Eve. And then we'll focus on the, the power of God's Word as we prepare for a new year together. And then in January, we'll jump back into 1 Samuel together. So this morning, as I mentioned, we are beginning the first Sunday of Advent. As we're going to, as Nathaniel mentioned, over the next four weeks, be looking at hope, peace, joy, and love. And this morning, we are beginning by looking at one aspect of what the Bible teaches us about hope and how the incarnation empowers us to have enduring hope so let me read for us from Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13, and then we'll pause and take a moment to pray and ask for the Lord's help as we come before the truth of his word. So Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray together. Father, first, we just want to take a moment as we do every week to thank you for the mercies you've already shown us this day over this past week. You've been kind to us, patient with us, long-suffering toward us. And we know that that's only possible because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, because of his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so, Father, we proclaim together this morning that our hope is on Jesus alone. Our hope is fixed on him, on what he has done in our place. And we are so thankful that you have sent your spirit to dwell in us, to give us eyes to see the glories of Christ, to give us hearts and minds that are ready to understand the truth of your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would be at work in us this morning for our good and for the glory of your name. Father, we need to hear from Romans chapter 15 this morning because all of us, myself included, need to have hope. <laughs> Father, you have called us to have hope-filled lives for the glory of your name. And so, Father, I pray that we would wrestle with the truth of your word this morning and be convicted by it and encouraged by it all at the same time. Father, we pray that you would equip us with the truth of your word, that we might be conformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus and so, Father, I pray that you would guide my words, allow me to say only what is true of you, only what is true of your word. And I pray that, as I've said, that it would be good for your people and it would be for the glory of your name. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, as Nathaniel already mentioned, preparing us for what Advent is, the word Advent is just a Latin word that literally means coming or arrival. In fact, the Oxford English Dictionary defines Advent as, quote, the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. So it's important to remember when we observe these four Sundays of Advent, we aren't just looking back to the manger. We're not just looking back to that coming. We're also looking forward to the next coming of Christ. It is about not just his first arrival, but also his second arrival. And so, for example, this morning as we focus on hope, we're not only remembering the fulfillment of the hopes of the nations and of the Jewish people when he came, but that he continues to be the hope of that day that is yet to come. And so even as we think about hope today, we we do so looking forward to his return while remembering that the hope of that return is built firmly on the foundation of his first coming to the manger. It's all one thing to reflect on and to meditate on. And I love that we get to spend the next few weeks thinking about meditating on, learning about the incarnation of Christ and all that that means for us. Now, just to clarify, when we use the word incarnation, some of you may not be familiar with that word. That's just a theological word that's referring to when the eternal Son of God willingly became a man and was born as a human being to Mary and Joseph, to Mary in Bethlehem. When he took on flesh, the second person of the Trinity took on flesh and was born a man. When we use the word incarnation, that's what we are referring to, the Christ becoming incarnate, becoming one of us, becoming a human being. And we're going to take these next few weeks to focus on the incarnation from a number of different angles. And it's going to give us an opportunity, I think, as you're going to see this morning, as it's even been true in my life, to think about the incarnation from lots of different angles, perhaps ways that you haven't thought of it before, perhaps ways in which you haven't thought of how it should even be impacting your life today and the implications it should have for us, even in our obedience now. And this morning is going to be one of those times. We're we're, going to see this morning in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13, that the incarnation actually impacts how we think about the church. It impacts how we treat one another in the church, and therefore it impacts whether or not we are going to have an enduring hope in the person of Jesus Christ. So what we're doing this morning in Romans 15, 8 through 13, is joining Paul the Apostle Paul who wrote Romans, we're we're joining him as he puts forward the incarnation as the bridge between disunity in the church and a glorious unity that leads to a hope-filled people. So let me say that again so you get the overarching view of what it is that I believe Paul is accomplishing in verses 8, 8 through 13. Paul puts forward the incarnation of Christ as the bridge between disunity in the church and a glorious unity that leads to a hope-filled people. Because God wants us to be hope-filled people. You see it throughout this passage. Even if we back up a little bit earlier in chapter 15, you see there in verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have what? Hope. The scriptures were written to give you hope. God wants you to have hope. And then if we skip down to 
verse 12, it says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. And in him, the root of Jesse, the person of Jesus Christ, in him the Gentiles will what? They will hope. And then, of course, verse 13, he identifies God as the God of hope. And we'll talk about this later, but this is the only place in the Bible where God is referred to as the God of hope. And then, of course, Paul's concluding words at the end of verse 13 is that we would abound in hope. Not that we would just have a little bit of hope, but that we would abound. That word means to be overflowing with hope, that we would walk around on hope would be spilling out of us. We're so filled with hope. This is what God wants for us. And we we need to hear this because it's very easy to become cynical about hope in this world. Because we've all hoped in things and have been let down. All of us. My family especially. We are University of South Carolina Gamecock football fans. We know what it means to hope for next season and then be let down every single year, right? It's never going to happen. We hope and we're let down. We hope and we're let down. Now, that's not a problem. We can get over that. But there have been other times in your life that you've hoped for something, that you've desired for that thing to come to pass, and you have been deeply hurt and disappointed and let down because your hope did not come to fruition. And as a result of that kind of hurt and that kind of disappointment, the natural human reaction for many of us is to just not hope anymore. Why should I hope in something if I'm just going to be hurt by it, if I'm just going to be let down, if I'm just going to be disappointed? So we guard ourselves from the pain of disappointment by just giving up on hoping in anything. But this passage reminds us that refusing to hope is not an option for followers of Jesus. It's not an option because God's desire for us is that we would abound in hope. And I just want to say to you this morning that biblical hope is not wishful thinking. We need to understand that when the Bible uses the word hope, it's not referring to this wishful thinking sense of hope that we often use. No, Hebrews 11.1, 1, for example, says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is being fully convinced that what you're hoping in is going to come to pass. You are banking your life on it. You see, faith assures us of what we hope for, and we are uh, commanded to have firm conviction of it, not, not wishful thinking, but firm conviction about that which we cannot see. Well, Romans chapter 8, verses 23 to 25 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In other words, biblical hope is patiently waiting with confidence and eagerness for our eternal home with Jesus and the new heavens and the new earth, satisfied in Christ for all eternity. That's biblical hope. And that's the hope God wants for you. And that's the hope that God wants for me. So we need to, in a biblical sense, we need to put away all cynicism. We need to put away all hesitancy and fix our hope on Jesus Christ because God's desire is that we are a hope-filled people. 
The emphasis of Romans chapter 15 could not be more clear. So, if that's true, and Romans 15 says that it is, we need to recognize what can hinder us from having this kind of confident hope. What keeps us from having this hope that God desires all of us have? Now, there's lots of answers to that question. But the one answer that Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 14 and Romans chapter 15 is that one of the greatest hindrances to being filled with hope is disunity in the local church. And the solution that Paul offers in Romans 15 is for us to look at the manger, for us to look at the manger, to be reminded of the incarnation so that we then, so that we then can lift our heads to look to the clouds and hope. This is what Paul wants from us. This is the reality that Paul sets up for us. On one side, we have this hope-destroying disunity. And on the other side, we have this hope-filled unity that Paul wants us to have. And the question Paul is answering is, how do we get from this hope-destroying disunity to this hope-giving unity? And the bridge he gives us to get from one place to the other is to look to the incarnation, to look to Christ and what he sought to accomplish when he came and humbled himself and dwelt among us. So that's the journey we're going to go on with Paul this morning. This danger of disunity, the bridge of the incarnation that helps us understand how we get from there to this hope-filled unity among God's people. So those are the three steps we're going to take this morning. Number one, we will see hope-destroying disunity Two, hope established in the incarnation. And then finally, number three, hope abounding among God's people. So let's look at that first step, hope destroying disunity. So I want to begin by setting the context for Romans 15 verses 8 through 13. Typically, we are working our way through books of the Bible. So we're, we're coming, we're coming in, we're just dropping into Romans chapter 15. So we need to take a moment to understand Why is Paul saying what he says in verses 8 through 13? Because he's talking about verse 8, Christ becoming a servant to the circumcised. That's a reference to his incarnation. We see in verse 12, he's talking about the root of Jesse coming. That's the promised Messiah, the root of Jesse coming to be the hope of the Gentiles. Here he is placing the incarnation in the middle of this. Why is Paul talking about the incarnation? What is it that's happening here at the end of the book of Romans that brings verses 8 through 13 to bear. Well, if you just back up one verse and look at verse 7, we begin to get a little bit of an understanding of what Paul is dealing with in the church at Rome. Verse 7 says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Why does Paul need to call on the Romans to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed them? What is it that's happening in the church that is causing this focus to rise up on how Christ has welcomed us, how Christ has come both for Jew and Gentile in the incarnation? Well, one of the greatest threats to the unity of the early church was the dividing lines that still existed between Jewish believers that had come to Christ and Gentiles who had come to Christ. There were all kinds of cultural differences. There were tradition differences among them. There were even differences of religious practice among them. But yet they were fellowshipping together in one local church. And Paul was concerned that these differences, this disunity was going to be destructive for them. So we see examples of this. If you just back up one chapter in chapter 14, at the beginning of chapter 14, he he gives just a few examples of these issues that they were having. 
Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So here's the difference in personal convictions about diet. One group of people isn't going to touch meat. The other group of people is going to eat whatever you put in front of them for religious reasons. And these differences, Paul was concerned, were beginning to tear at the unity of the church. And in fact, in the very next verse, Paul goes on to say, verse 3, chapter 14, verse 3, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, because God has welcomed him. Treat him as God treats him. Or you skip down to verse 5, another distinction is some, one person was esteeming one day is better than another, while another was esteeming all days alike. Some set aside certain days to carry religious importance. Another group said, that's silly, we don't need to do that. Like They're just days of the week. And Paul says at the end of verse 5 in chapter 14, well, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats it in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. The one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and give thanks to God. There's freedom in all of this as long as you're doing it for the glory of God. And it's astonishing that Paul doesn't say, well, take your convictions less seriously. Now, what does he say at the end of verse 5? Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The solution isn't to let go of your convictions. The solution is hang on to them and still love each other, even where you disagree. Look, this is such a powerful truth for us because we talk in this church a lot about what we call theological tears. We talk about it in every new member class. We talk about it in our theology class. Theological tears, rankings of importance of different doctrines. And by God's grace in this church, we're not going to let third-tier issues divide us. And these are the issues that Paul is addressing. So first-tier issues are issues of utmost importance. These are issues that we would say you cannot meaningfully reject and still be called a Christian. The deity of Christ, the Trinity, the, the second coming of Christ, the physical resurrection of Christ. These are things we have to agree on These because it's what the Bible clearly teaches. And then there are what we would call second-level issues, second-tier issues, issues where we would say, look, people can be Christians and disagree about these things, but in order to fellowship together in a local church effectively, you really have to agree on a few certain things. So one example of that would be here in this church, we practice believers' baptism by immersion in the water. We believe that's what the Bible teaches. It's hard to function together in a church where you have a different view of who ought to be baptized. So those are second-tier issues. We have brothers and sisters in Presbyterian churches that, that baptize infants that we would say, we're going to see in heaven, right? We just disagree on that issue. But in this church, we're, gonna, we're going to agree on that particular issue. But then there's, there's third-level issues that we say, look, we're, we're not going to let these things divide us. These are things like how you think the end times may work out. You might be pre-millennial, post-millennial. You might be amillennial. You might be pre-tribulation rapture. You might be post-tribulation rapture. You might be mid-tribulation rapture. You can have all different kinds of views of the end times, and we're going to fellowship together. You might have different views about whether or not someone should participate in Halloween or not. We're going to fellowship together. 
We're going to have all kinds of different views about these third-level issues. There's a long list of them. Who wrote Hebrews? Schooling choices for children, observance of holidays, how to handle work and the Sabbath, how do those interplay, right? There's all these kind of issues that we're going to disagree on, that you're going to have different views than I have, and you're going to have different views than the person sitting next to you. These are the kinds of issues Paul is addressing in Romans 14, and he tells people, don't despise one another over these issues. Don't sit in judgment over each other concerning these issues. And remember, He doesn't say they're not important. In fact, he says, be convinced of them. That's why we say when we talk about these issues that we think it's good and healthy for you to have personal convictions on these issues. You ought to have personal convictions on lots of these questions. You should be, as verse 5 says, fully convinced in your own mind and yet love each other anyway. Now, why is that important? And how do we do that? So let me answer why it's important. And then we're going to talk about how we do that by looking to the incarnation of Christ. But let's be sure we understand why this is important. If we don't strive to love each other in the midst of our differences over third tier issues, then we're cutting ourselves off from the very means that God has given us to have an enduring hope in Christ. We need the unity of God's people to endure faithfully. Now, that may sound like an overstatement, but we just not long ago worked through the book of Hebrews, and I don't know how else to interpret certain parts of Hebrews if that's not true. So, for example, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So how are we going to guard our hearts against having an evil, unbelieving heart, leading us to fall away from the living God, leading us to be hopeless, leading us to not have our hope fixed in Christ? How is that going to happen? We have to take care of each other, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what Hebrews chapter 3 says to us. We have an obligation to one another to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Our Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So how is it that we're going to hold fast to the confession of our hope? By being sure we're present among God's people, encouraging one another. So if you want to be a hope-filled person, if you want to be abounding in hope, God says you need each other. And if there's disunity among us, then the very means of grace that God has given us, we've been cut off from. So that's what I mean when I say that it is hope-destroying disunity. The local church guards us from having evil, unbelieving hearts. It helps us get ready for the day that draws near. So one of the most important things we can do if we want to be a hope-filled people, if we want to ensure that our hope remains fixed on Christ and His coming, is that we commit ourselves to a local church. 
and that we commit ourselves to love one another in the midst of our differences. Otherwise, we become more concerned about being right and we fool ourselves into believing that God cares more about the superiority of our convictions over others than the love we have for others. What actually pleases the Lord is for us to hold our convictions firmly and yet humbly and care for one another in the midst of those differences. So how do we do that? This is a key question, and it is not easy because those convictions that you hold, those convictions that I hold, are so important to us. And Paul says they should be. Be fully convinced. So how do we move from being fully convinced about something and yet pursuing unity when I know people disagree with me about those issues? How do we do that? Well, Romans chapter 15, 7 says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And that brings us to the incarnation. Let's look at hope established in the incarnation. Verse 8, Paul says, For or because I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. So let's just pause there before we look at what Paul is saying Christ accomplished in becoming a servant to the circumcised. Let's just be sure we understand what's happening with that first word of verse 8. For, therefore, Paul is grounding verse 7 in what he's going to say in verses 8 through 13. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God because, and then Paul says, let me tell you what Christ did. Let me tell you how Christ has welcomed you so that you can overcome your lack of love for those who have differing convictions for you. And so Paul says in verse 8 that Jesus became a servant to the circumcised. This is simply a statement of Christ's incarnation. He came not to be served, but to serve. He became a servant to the circumcised, the Jewish people. He was born a Jew. He was born to Jewish parents. That's how he came. He took on flesh, the eternal Son of God, through whom and for whom all things exist, took on flesh and was born to Jewish parents. Now, why did he do that? Verse 8, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Number one, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So that's number one reason he came. He came to demonstrate that God is faithful, that all the promises that God made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, the promise he made to Eve in the garden when he told Eve that, look, your seed is going to crush the head of Satan. He's going to come. The promise that he gave to Abraham that his offspring would inherit the nations, the promise that came through the line of David that a king would come to sit on the throne of Judah, the lion from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the one. He confirms the promises given to the patriarchs. In Christ, they are all yes and amen. And if we stopped right here in verse 8, you can see the, the Jewish believers in Rome puffing their chest out and saying, you better believe that's why Jesus came. He came for us. But Paul doesn't stop in verse 8. In verse 9 says, well, he also came in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And so while the Gentiles may think they are superior because he came to show them mercy, while the Jews may think they're, the Jewish believers may think they're superior because he came to confirm his truthfulness of his promises made to the patriarchs, Paul's saying, put it all aside. He came for all of you. He came for all of you. He came to show that God is faithful and true. 
and he came to show mercy to the Gentiles. And look, the most controversial part of that statement in this day and in this time would have been that Jesus came to show mercy to the Gentiles, which is why Paul spends the next few verses just quoting Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage, proving that this was always God's plan, that it was never his intention to send the Messiah just for the Jewish people. In fact, he intentionally, it seems, picks out a passage from each section of the Old Testament scriptures to say it's not just in one section, it's in the entire Old Testament. God has always been, always desired the Gentiles to give praise to his name. And so you see that. Verse 9 is from 2 Samuel. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is David speaking, the one through whose line the Christ would come. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. You see, that comes from Deuteronomy. That comes from the law. Rejoice, O Gentiles, nations, non-Jews. Rejoice with his people. And again, verse 11 says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. That comes from the Psalms. And then verse 12 tells us where it comes from. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. The root of Jesse, the branch of Jesse will come. The long-awaited Messiah, the king who would sit on the throne. And he will arise to rule the Gentiles, and in him will the Gentiles hope. In him will the Gentiles hope. Because of the birth of Christ, because he took on flesh and dwelt among us so that his flesh could be torn, so that he could die in our place because of his work on the cross. In him, the Gentiles will hope. So Paul says, look, Roman Christians, how can you not welcome those God has welcomed? Why are you going to stand in judgment over those whom God has welcomed? You have no right. That's what Paul says back in Romans 14, the end of verse 3, going into verse 4. God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? If they are the object of God's mercy, then they also should be the object of your mercy. If they are the object of God's love, then they should be the object of your love. You see, as we stare at the incarnation, as we stare at what Christ came to accomplish, we're able to move from thinking our personal conviction should overrule our love for others. Instead, we look to the incarnation and we are reminded, Jesus came for my brothers and sisters in Christ. He humbled himself and he took on flesh. The eternal son of God took on flesh to welcome my brother and sister in Christ. So why would I be bitter with them? Because they disagree with me about Halloween. Be fully convinced in your own mind, but love each other because Christ has loved you and he proved it in the manger. This is how we move from hope destroying disunity. This is how we begin to see that the hope is established in the incarnation. We, we are to hope in Christ, the one who came for Jew and Gentile, the one who came for all of us. And that moves us into hope abounding among God's people because this is God's ultimate desire for us, that we would be overflowing 
with hope. You see, this is how verse 13 is how Paul concludes this section. Verse chapter 14, he spends all this time talking about how we pursue unity in the midst of differing convictions. I encourage you to t- read all of chapter 14 this afternoon. It is an astonishing chapter of all that Paul deals with there. And then he moves in here. He says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Remember what Christ did when he came and took on flesh. He came for Jew and Gentile. He came for all kinds of people. So love one another as Christ has loved you. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And then he concludes with this powerful statement in verse 13. This is his grand conclusion to this section, this prayer for God's people. And he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. That's fascinating. I mentioned this earlier that this is the only place in the Bible where God is called the God of hope. He's the God of hope. It's unique because it's the only place, but it's also unique because of how it differs from other descriptions of God. So when we say that God is the God of love, We mean that God shows us love. When we say that God is a God of mercy, we mean that he shows us mercy. When we say that God is the God of justice, we mean that he renders his justice against us. But when we say that God is a God of hope, we don't mean that God is the one hoping. God doesn't hope. God determines. God rules. God leads, right? He guides. God determines outcomes. God doesn't hope. So what does it mean when it says that God is a God of hope? It means that God is a God who wants to give you hope. (laughs) He is the giver of hope and the object of our hope. He gives us hope and he is the one in whom we are to hope. That's what it means when it says that God is a God of hope. And he wants you to be filled with that hope. He's the God of hope because he will never fail us. He will never disappoint us. He will never let us down. He will never let one promise fall to the ground. He will remain true to every word he has said, which is why Romans 15, 4 says that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and the incursion of Scripture, you might have hope so that you can look back on God's faithfulness and say he never once failed. Everything he said came to pass. He never let his people down. We can have full confidence in him. We can put our hope in him, the God of hope. Now, if he wants us to be filled with hope, why doesn't verse 13 just say, may the God of hope fill you with all hope? But that's not what he says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. See, this is Paul saying to these Roman Christians, saying to us that if you want to be filled with hope, that you need to find your joy in the good news of the gospel. You need to be a happy Christian. Now, that doesn't mean trite. That doesn't mean you have to always have a smile on your face. It doesn't mean when you're suffering, you pretend like it doesn't hurt, that it's not painful, that you're not weeping, that you're not crying. That's not what this kind of joy means. But it means an unbreakable joy in knowing that regardless of what comes your way, God is for you through the person of Jesus Christ. It's an enduring joy. That means even when we suffer, we can sing through our tears. We have a joy, an enduring joy, and we have a peace. We're at peace with God. 
because of the finished work of Christ. We who were his enemies are now at peace with him because Christ has come and he has taken the judgment that we deserved on himself. And because Christ has done that, we can be at peace with God. And because we can be at peace with God, we can now be at peace with one another. The reality that Paul knows is that disgruntled, joyless, unhappy, conflict-filled, anxious-filled believers cause disunity in the local church. And so he says, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace and believing so that, so that you don't allow disunity to fester, so that you don't allow personal convictions to take precedence, so that you all can help each other keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, so that you can abound in hope. This is what God wants for you. He wants you to be over flowing with hope. He wants you to be walking around with hope spilling out of your pockets, spilling out of your mouth, spilling out of your mind. He wants you to be overflowing with hope and confidence as you eagerly await the coming of his son. So we should be the most hope-filled people on the planet. And what Paul is saying to us is that if we want to be hope-filled Christians, then we must commit ourselves to a healthy local church And once we're there, we have to allow the incarnation of Christ to inform how we relate to one another in the church. Now, I'm so thankful for this church. I'm thankful that I can stand up here and with confidence preach this sermon. You don't think this is a bully pulpit. You don't think that I'm somehow trying to address some issue happening in this church. No, I'm thankful that God has given us this kind of unity. But it's also a warning to us that we should not take it for granted. And it will only be sustained if we meditate on these kind of truths. Look, I know this is a strange Christmas sermon, but I just want to preach what God's word says and what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13, that if we're going to welcome one another the way Christ has welcomed us, then we need to think about the incarnation. We need to think about that Jesus came in the flesh for Jew, for Gentile. He did it for everyone. And so let's not stand in judgment over others that Christ came to die for. Instead, let's let's love them in the midst of our differences so that we can help one another keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That's the end game, and that's the goal. We must look to the manger to keep our hearts knit together so that we can point each other to the sky filled with hope for the next time he arrives. This is what it means to have hope that abounds. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the good news of the gospel. Father, we're thankful that even though there are so many, so many things in this world that let us down, so many things that we have placed our hope in that have disappointed us, that have hurt us, that have caused us deep and abiding scars and pain, Father, we know that because of the finished work of Christ that stands in our place, you will never fail us. You will never let us down. So we can have full confidence in you. We can build our lives on the solid rock foundation. And when the waves crash, we will remain standing because you will remain standing. So Father, I pray that you would Help us to look to the incarnation, to remember how Christ has welcomed his people, Jew and Gentile, a people from all nations. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people of firm conviction and yet abundant, overwhelming 
merciful love for one another so that we can encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near and be a people abounding with hope. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.